Kia ora and welcome to Cinema in Context, where we discuss all things film and the connections between. My name is Jeremy Downing. I'm William Chen. And I'm Max Tarrant. Each month at Cinema in Context, we discuss two films, one current and one retrospective, with some connection. It could be the same director, the same actor, or a similar theme. This month, we are discussing Baby Driver, which came out this year, and Reservoir Dogs, which came out in 1992. The connection being that they are both heist films with very distinctive soundtracks. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there's more connections to be made, which we're going to get into. Um, before we get into the introduction of the film, I just want to uh, mention that Sarah is not with us this week. Uh, she is, she's just come back from a trip all overseas, so she's recovering from that. We look forward to having her back on our podcast next time. And we will be discussing spoilers from Reservoir Dogs. It's our general rule that we discuss the old film, spoiler-filled. But we will keep our discussion around Baby Driver relatively spoiler-free. And on that note, let's hear about Baby Driver, William. All right, thank you very much. Baby Driver is from director Edgar Wright, uh, from such films as the Cornetto trilogy of Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and World's End, and TV show Spaced, um, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, he was on Ant-Man for a long time, um, and it is a very, uh, as you said, Jeremy, a very stylized take on the heist film where just like Reservoir Dogs, you don't see the heist. It's all about everything around the heist. And in this case, about the getaway driver himself. Um, So-called because, I mean, his name is Baby, or he calls himself Baby. And he has some mean driving skills as as well as a very... um, a very good taste in music. Uh, the, the movie portrays his tinnitus as something that affects him throughout his life. And to drown out that, that constant din, he orchestrates his life and his chases to different uh, jukebox, music, jukebox musical styled uh, montages. Excellent. And William, uh, sorry, William. Excellent. Max, do you want to give us a bit of an overview of Reservoir Dogs? So, Reservoir Dogs, 1992. This is Quentin Tarantino's uh, 1992 breakout. Um, This is the man that needs no introduction, really, but uh, obviously it shows off his um, great focus on interesting dialogue. It's about a heist um, that's gone wrong, basically, and we're introduced to some fantastic characters, and some fantastic actors, really, as well, aren't we? Let's, I mean, t- starting with Reservoir Dogs, I mean, it was Quentin Tarantino's breakout onto the scene. Mm. And I, one of the things that I've written down in my notes is that it's just a confident, really confident film. You know, as his first fully finished, you know, studio-released movie, uh, it's, it's pretty damned impressive. And it still mm. holds up today as mm. being a really gripping, thrilling Film. It yeah. did, did hugely well at all the uh, film festivals, Cannes, Sundance, and one other major one. Um, and yeah, I think that confidence is interesting. Almost more confident than some of his more recent films, I think. Just the style and the dialogue can be kind of quite conspicuously written. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet they just go for it much more strongly in this than they do in some of the old, later films. Definitely. I think the pacing as well, especially if you compare Reservoir Dogs to something like uh, Django Unchained, which, or, or even Hateful Eight, which is just so shaggy around the edges. And it's enjoyable to watch because it's so, it's so loose and shaggy, but Reservoir Dogs just feel so much tighter. Mm. Mm. I didn't think about the pacing, but it is. It's actually quite beautiful how fantastically it flows and it builds up and fades down and um, obviously it's a lot like a piece of theatre which has been 
a criticism and but for me probably a positive aspect um, that this is all about the acting and the dialogue and and I, I just love those types of movies and this was one of my favorite this was my favorite Tarantino and one of my favorite movies for a mm. long time because I just love those types of movies that are small and closed spaces few locations tense, few locations spare <laughs> uh, scenario and just yeah really focused on the tension between characters I think that tightness I fully agree with you both in that this film is it's you know it's an hour and a half and it's got so much packed into the hour and a half and and I love you know Tarantino is my favorite I love all of his films but there is a different way of watching Django Unchained or The Hateful Eight you know where you have to kind of camp out for that time and just allow the film to take you on that sort of very well not meandering journey but you know you've got to give those scenes their space whereas with Reservoir Dogs it's just hitting you right then and there um, and it's interesting because one of the things I felt about Baby Driver is that it had a tightness about it as well. Yeah. That it definitely. wasn't sprawling. There was a limited amount of characters. The story was about the characters. There wasn't too much outside influence. Mm-hmm. And I think in an age where the third act of a film explodes into city destruction, it's so nice to watch a movie that's just two or three characters having a conflict in a, in a space. Yeah. Um, I just if I can jump in there, there was a, a a quote that I really liked from a reviewer. Um, it's all bolted together like clockwork, an assemblage of elements designed to arouse and engage. And that's gonna kind of come back come up later on with my perspective about Baby Driver, but it is it's tightly woven together, which is nice without feeling too contrived like yes. both Reservoir Dogs and Baby Driver it's like there's this tightness there's this real clear sense of purpose there's this confidence and yet you can see there's been space for uh, I don't want to say improvisation but allowing whatever's happening in the moment to come through in the scene mm. which is so nice like real character moments that don't really have to do with plot or machinations or anything else and Harvey Keitel is going to be the, the best um, <laughs> example of that I think he's so amazing. Uh, this period of his acting was just amazing. I love the way he gets in the car early on in the, in the film. Um, and he's going, what does he say? He, come on, baby. Come on, baby. He really stretches it out yeah, and makes yeah. his character. Yeah. Baby. And he's, there's this really lovely dynamic and relationship between him and Tim Roth. Yeah. Who's now dying in the car. And they're acting as... Uh, he's acting almost like a father figure mm. and, and very sensitive, very interesting kind of male-male relationship mm. when, which is kind of, usually wouldn't be probably okay, but because he's dying it creates this slightly different dynamic. I agree. That, that relationship to me is the heart of Reservoir Dogs, you know? Mm-hmm. For all of its roughness, its, its grittiness uh, and its, it's this really uncomfortable parts, I feel. Um, they, they, there's a really interesting relationship there. It's, mm. it's not um, clear-cut. Like you say, father relationship, you could probably make arguments for all different dynamics yeah. in that, that relationship. Uh, and Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth together. Yeah. Is, it's, really, it's really impressive. Interestingly, you talked about the, the, the film being almost like a piece of theatre. And he wrote, Tarantino wrote that movie like it could be filmed in one warehouse. So all of the cutaways was not initially... Planned to be filmed because he wanted to do it on a really low budget, didn't he? Well, because he had to, you know. And then Harvey Keitel got hold of the script, right. and yep. it was his influence that got the larger budget. So, what was know? Keitel in before this that had him had that meant that he had the status? Well, he was in Taxi Driver. He was in oh yeah, Taxi um, Driver would have been yeah. one of the early ones. Of he's those. he's done a lot of, mm. of. He's always been a kind of a, a, a strong bit on the, on the edges as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
I, I know he did the piano after this. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Holy Smoke was after this. Yeah. Holy yeah. Smoke's cool, eh? Yeah. Um, and that that if that is the core of the film, that's why the ending is really satisfying. Um, when he Kaitel is betrayed by Tim Roth, Kaitel really stands up for Tim Roth, which is almost a little bit debatable that he stands up for Tim Roth despite all the evidence. Um, as being the rat in their troop. Um, and he says, no, the, Tim Roth is not the one. I know this guy. I've built this fantastic relationship with him. Um, trust me, he's not the rat. And um, Kaitel's been shot, and he's lying there with Tim Roth, and Tim Roth whispers in his ear, I'm a cop. And he just, and it's just pure anguish, and it couldn't have been yeah. anybody apart yeah. from Kaitel. And that is a fantastic movie moment. I love, I love the, the, the I, I don't, is it a twist? But you know, you, you know that he's been shot. Mm-hmm. Tim Roth's character's been shot right from the start of the film. And, um, and so you, I assume when I, when I watched it and when I've rewatched it and forgotten bits of it, I assume that it's through the heist. It's a policeman that shot him. And so that's what ticks him off your list in terms of whether or not he's the snitch. Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, he's not a snitch because he's been shot by the police. But of course, the great twist is that just this woman in the car is the one that shoots him and it's just a happen. you know it's not a happy accident it's an accident that this happens it's a, it's a great way to subvert expectations and, and it means that that reveal when he shoots the uh, Michael Madsen character really quite quite thrilling yeah mm. it's quite like classic um, Tarantino in the sense of uh, and leading up to Pulp Fiction with the kind of time dynamics um, this film is really cool it starts with a lovely little scene introducing all the characters and giving us this, the vibe of the film, which is kind of banal, quite banal dialogue, some really idiosyncratic dialogue. Um, about Madonna's lucky star. Oh, no, no, not like star, like a virgin. Yeah, like a virgin. And so and it's, everything's quite jovial and, and there's a lot of banter. And then it switches like that to a shot of... Kaitel in the car with this guy dying behind him. So it, yeah. we, we talked about it skipping the heist, mm-hmm. and it does that very, very clearly. It does a strong contrast to suddenly we're in a different territory, and the tension is um, ramped up 100%, and suddenly it's all about um, individual interests as well, because Kaitel is not willing to take him to the hospital. Um, and it's and we're like, oh come on, take the oh, body oh, guy to the hospital. He, he, is, he, he is, is, but um, oh, he is. M- Mr. Pink is not. Yeah, Sebashimi. Sebashimi's oh, no, character, isn't it? Does, in the car, he says, "I'm not going to take you to the hospital." Oh, he changes his mind pretty quickly because yeah. he wants to. Because he's like, oh, know, okay, guy, maybe he does he change his mind. Because yeah, that was quite interesting. And 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 he kind of, I I found that an interesting little kind of um, what do you call it, roller coaster of tension because you're like oh god take him to the hospital and and you're really rooting for Tim Roth to be able to convince him to take him to the hospital and you think Kaitel is being self-interested but then Kaitel says look he, he, he comes out with all his intelligence and he kind of says look you've been shot in the gut it's one of the most painful places you can be shot alongside the kneecap um, but you're not going to die like he's, he's got this authority and you're like oh he's actually not just being self-interested here he knows what he's talking about which I, I quite enjoyed. Mm-hmm. There's some lovely character moments. Uh, and, and then, I mean, once you start adding to the characters as well, uh, Michael Madsen is kind of just the wild card coming in yeah. and messing up all of the character relationships. And it's, yeah. it's beautiful, it really is. Yeah. And then, of course, by the end, when everyone comes into play, 
uh, you have the Mexican standoff, you have everyone questioning everyone else. Yeah. And yeah, the, the ending of the movie, how everything ties together is just, it's, as you say, it's, it's heartbreaking, but it's also really, really satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. And then Mr. Pink, you know, it's debatable whether he gets away or not, but you know, Mr. Pink, he's the one that... Who's the, the actor? He, he, Steve Buscemi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he's the, the self-proclaimed professional. He, you know, I, I do this because I'm good at my job. And oh, what are you guys doing? Yeah. 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 He's, he's such, <laughs> it's so thrilling to go back and watch Steve Buscemi in those films like Fargo and, and Reservoir Dogs. Uh, particularly, I watched all of Boardwalk Empire. And he's mm. such a, um, such a oh, figure of wisdom. And even though he's a crook, he's, mm. he's got quite a prestige about him. Mm. And yet he's like this rat. A low-key, like yeah, ratty char- char- He's always a ratty character yep. in the early <laughs> in the things. But yeah. He reminds me and, of... And Armageddon as well. He, he's basically the rat. Like, right. <laughs> is, is he in Con Air? Yeah. Uh, yes. I'm pretty sure he is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which apparently they want to make... Oh, I think they've talked about making a prequel, uh, sequel too. Oh, really? Awesome. Yeah. Um, but he reminds me of who's that character? Midnight Cowboy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's his name? Oh, I can't remember. I'm it's, walking it's here. Famous, I'm walking here. Famous, oh, I'm famous walking. name as well, I think. Like, I yeah, know. I can't but remember. Don't you think Bushimi and that guy? It's like Rizzo or something. Rizzo, Rizzo, Rizzo. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Rats, yeah. Very, right. very, yeah. It's sort of a, a person of their location. Yeah. So, you know, the whole idea of a reservoir dog, you know, like yeah. it's that yeah. that idea, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. I mean, and Tarantino, of course, is in the film as well. He plays he plays Mr. Mr. Brown. Brown, and um, and you know, which, is, which he reckons is close to Mr. Shit. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking about that moment where um, where we find out that uh, Tim Roth's character is the rat, and that you know the. Um, uh, Michael Madsen's character, Mr. Blonde, is about to pour... Uh, he's poured gasoline over the cop and he's about to light the cop. And then he shoots him. And then it cuts back. And Tim you get, Roth shoots him. Yes, yeah. Tim Roth shoots him. And it cuts back and you get the story of, of, Tim, how, of Tim Roth's character, yeah. Mr. Orange. Um, and I, I forgot how much time was actually dedicated to all the cutaways. I mean, it, mm. it's, what, at least a third of the movie? Yeah. Uh, I, I guess because the, the first time I watched Reservoir Dogs was on a plane. Uh, maybe not the best place to watch movies. Uh, and I just forgot that, I mean, I thought the whole movie was going to be in the warehouse with only like brief snippets of cutaways, mm. but no, it's, it's a large chunk of the movie is, mm. is their backstory introduced at the moments where the audience would be, I guess, most susceptible to their backstories, which is really cool. Mm. Well, it reminds me of, of Kill Bill 2 and in, in Kill Bill 2, uh, the bride, the Emma character, she gets buried alive and it's a really, really terrifying scene. I remember watching it very clearly and she's buried alive she's screaming she's distressed you hear the car you hear the, the dirt being piled on the grave uh, on, on the casket and then you hear the car driving away and then it cuts to a, a, a flashback and you get the story of how she was trained as a martial artist and then um, part of her training is you know punching punching that you know if someone was an inch in front of you how would you what would you deal with it and it's so great because it's like i had no idea how she was going to get out of that grave and then you get this whole backstory without even realizing that you're getting the answer mm. right in the moment mm. about how she's going to get out of the grave and then it cuts back to it and then you get there and it's so it feels very satisfying one so. thing i felt about reservoir dogs though coming back to it was um kind of confronting in terms of the violence and the shouting of this film, there is so much shouting, it's so noisy and in your face, that I felt a little bit more funny about it than I used to. I think I used to really hold that up as like, this is the reality, you know, like we're, this is about, that's the authenticity of it, is that it's, it's violent and it's intense. 
But really, this is done for entertainment, purely for entertainment. And that's why now, kind of coming back to it, I mean, there's been kind of little criticisms about that in his later films. Um, but coming back to this earlier film, you really see it probably most front and center. Oh, I, I'm totally with you about the shouting. That's hilarious. I, I didn't think about that. But yeah, the, the final, I guess, act of the entire movie is just people screaming in other yeah. people's faces. It got quite tired. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to fully agree with you. When you. The first time I ever watched Reservoir Dogs, I felt it as well. I described it as feeling really rough and raw. Like, it's not necessarily the most enjoyable experience watching no. this film. And I re-watched it with my, uh, one of my sisters and my brother. I've kind of got them into Tarantino. They've been loving all the films they've watched. But even they were like, oh, this is quite hard mm. to watch. Because um, it's not in, in any of his other movies. I mean, uh, the dialogue scenes are very much, you know, dialogue scenes. Instead of people raising their voice like, oh, Harvey Keitel is, yeah. is screaming by the end yeah, of the movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, I think it's, it's kind of part of the strength of the film, but also it's something that makes... It's one of those weird things. It's like it could be a strength or a weakness, depending on how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. What I will say is, though, is that I don't feel the film is actually that... Um, how shall I phrase this? I want to say it's not that violent. Like I think it's affecting violence, but the gunshot you don't really see. The cutting of the ear you don't see. Yeah. Um, you it's know, intentionally it's, off screen. It's intentionally off screen. Yeah. It's, it's the way the actors are performing and just the presence of a mostly stark grey and white set with all this blood dripping everywhere. That's yeah. the, where the horror comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely see the wound of the ear. That's a very graphic kind of wound. But on a whole, it's it's the presence of blood. And the, and the performance of the actors and um, yeah, well, they put the, all the shouting is very violent. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the fact that um, Tim Roth—it's the way that he's writhing in the back of the car, yes. blood everywhere. Yes, but but in reality, you don't—that's all you really see. Yeah, it's the same with um, Pulp Fiction. Like you don't in Pulp Fiction, you don't see a lot in Pulp Fiction, and yet people have this idea that it's this incredibly violent film. Don't get me wrong; there are definitely violent moments, but um, kind of violent ideas. You know, yeah, like getting mm-hmm. raped. Yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. And like the whole um, adrenaline shot in the heart. Yeah. Like yep. you don't see that. It's all tension. And, mm-hmm. and the acting of the reaction. Yeah, the reaction. And, and, it's, and that's what sells it. And, and, and it, so whenever people say to me, Tarantino is very violent, it's like, look, I'll give you Kill Bill. Kill Bill is very violent. But it's comic book violence uh, for the mm-hmm. most part. Um, but on the whole, he's, it's, it's, it's really affecting. Guillermo del Toro talks about it as well. Like he only uses violence in really specific ways to affect the audience. Mm. So in Pan's Labyrinth, for instance, you get someone's lip cut, the side mm-hmm. of their lip cut, which is a really horrible idea. Mm. Or um, in Devil's Backbone, someone gets a spear in the armpit. Um, or uh, again, in, in Pan's Labyrinth, someone gets their nose bashed in. And it's like yeah, that's, the way that's, he yes. uses it is really shocking. Yeah. But what you're actually seeing um, your mind is filling in the blanks, mm-hmm. um, or uh, or Django Unchained, like the Mandingo fighting. The guy gets his, he gets killed with a hammer. Yeah. You just see his feet. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't see. The, it's really interesting. I, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but a discussion around what is affecting violence, what is glorified violence, yeah, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. I I don't know. I almost I almost feel like that distinction kind of doesn't matter in some ways because it's it's affecting violence. Yeah, I, I don't know. To mm. me. I don't know. It, it, it doesn't need to show it for it to like. I guess that's the point. It's, it's affecting violence. So I don't know. In some ways, I'm like, what's the distinction? What is it useful for? Well, yeah. Are you going? Well, okay. Well, uh, I was thinking of, when you were talking about that, Jeremy. I was thinking immediately of The Dark Knight and how how gruesome that movie is. 
but it's rated M, which is like what? <laughs> mm, mm. <laughs> um, the, the, the scene with the, the pool cues—that's some of the most horrifying stuff like I've, I've ever seen in movies. And yet they, they, I mean, when I went to see The Dark Knight, there was a Batmobile toy ad before it. And what is up with sensors and how do they decide? I mean, it's, it's mm. horrifying and also really bizarre. So my question also is a follow-on question. In terms of, I guess if we could get into the whole, the, 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 the moral debate behind observing violence on screen. And we watch a lot of action movies where people are getting blown up all over the show. We don't see any blood. What's worse? Seeing seeing the after effects of a real moment of violence or seeing a whole lot of violence that has no consequences on screen. Mm. And I don't have the yeah. answer to this. I'm yeah. just putting yeah. it out. Yeah, I know. That is a good point. My, my, my point was going to be something about... I think there's something to do with the, the intention of it. And so definitely if you're using your violence for pure entertainment, I feel like that makes it... Anything that's part of that is slightly more problematic for me than if you're using it for... I mean, if you, if you shock with it, that is better than... Not being shocking, yeah, it, that's I, for sure. I, I would definitely agree with that as well. I think uh, movies with violence that is shocking but used to make a point, uh, just stay, stay with me personally so, so much more than, that, than the other movies. And, and mm. so maybe if we can take a concrete example of um, the well, guy yeah. that, 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 that's torturing the policeman. Mr. Blonde. Mr. Blonde. How do we feel about that violence? Because that, for me, was felt like... That was a bit challenging. Like I know, I know it doesn't show it, but we're saying it, it, that is violent anyway. What's it kind of for? It, you know, it, it, as a part of the whole movie, it's just for kind of entertainment and creating this interesting character. Well, you got to, that's that's the greatest scene in the whole film, in my opinion. Like it's really the, it's, well, it's the juxtaposition of this horror that's going on. The, and the music his, and the music yeah. stuck in the middle with you. Like that's yeah. that's me is the core of what Tarantino did. He took. He took this and he twisted it together. Mm. I don't really have an answer with you. That, that, I found it so I found it so entertaining that, that I'm like exemplifies that's that, that exemplifies the larger thing. I kind of see like the the twisting of pop culture, relatively light pop culture with um, with violence as well. Because eh? the whole film's about pop culture references and they're always talking about pop culture references and that's what Tim Roth actually uses well, pop culture or well anecdotes, but kind yeah. of similar vibe. That's how he how he gets into the group. Is he? That's he oh okay. Flips yeah. the that's it. Okay, let's let's this because I, I I don't know whether we can ever come to any conclusion about what we're discussing, but it's a good discussion. But that scene, that sequence where he's practicing the story, mm-hmm. is the other greatest scene in the film. Yeah, it's really cool. And like, then it starts off in one place and ends up with like it starts off with him being told the story, him practicing the story, him telling the story, then him going into the story, yeah, and then him telling the story in the story. Yeah, like it's just like. Yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah. Did you want to say? You were going to say? Something? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to say the uh, the jump from him being in the bar, like telling a story, to the actual depiction of the story is is fantastic. It really is. It's it's such a like yeah five layers deep of meta mm. ness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, baby driver, baby driver. Um, who wants to jump on the well, baby well, driver? I, I think a, a good um, jump starting point is, is talking about how pop culture is used to drive the entire movie. I mean, a, a lot of people have been saying that it's it's a musical, right? It's a crime musical. Yeah. Uh, with I mean, it doesn't have any original music, unfortunately, but it uses music to such great effect and to drive the entire movie. <laughs> Sorry. You said, you said uh, it earlier, so oh, I was thinking. Okay. Yeah, it's a great Unintentionally one. first time. And, and I had a chore- and I saw a choreographer right up front of the yeah. credits, you know, choreographed by. There, there are some scenes where it's 
it, it is front and centre a musical. It's it's dancing. It's mm. um. When he's I, I coming mean, back from the coffee shop. When he's coming back yeah. from the coffee shop, the, the scene where he and his love interest, played by Lily James, are in the laundromat. Yep. And it's it's a conversation. And I mean, the whole scene is what them listening to the same set of he- earbuds. Yeah. But the camera is moved in the way, and it's staged in the way where they're like, it's a duet. They're yep. dancing, and it's a ballet, and there's beautiful colours in the background. And the opening, the opening with the with the three um, gangsters going off and, and doing the heist. Yeah. Just, and, and like that's I was thinking about watching it having just done a musical myself um, we would rehearse it in the exact same way I was thinking they would have done the same thing they would have choreographed it they would have worked with the actors they would have put the camera in there mm-hmm. and it made me think of um, Little Shop of Horrors which is the Frank Oz directed film and he he just said that when they were choreographing the, the camera was always choreographed as part of that the set design was always part of that because they needed to have so many footsteps oh, to make awesome. the music so the, the, the walls were, were a certain length and I felt they probably did the same thing in this film. The whole mm. sets were designed to, to match the, the movement of the characters. I think that, that sounds like the exact opposite, and you, you and I have talked about this, Jeremy, of the producer's movie, the movie of the musical of the movie, mm. yeah. where the entire movie felt like a camera uh, set in front of a stage yeah, where people true. were dancing, and it was the most boring thing in the world. They specifically set out to create that film, which was, let's just film the stage musical. Mm-hmm. And it is boring. As a, as a, as a facsimile of the stage musical... It works fine, yeah. but as a film, it doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> differently. So failed experiment. Like, yeah. nice that you tried it, but you know, like, glad someone's done it and it yeah. let it go. But no, no, it had to. Like Little Shop of Horrors, I come back to. Like the more I think about that as a movie musical, like that's such a phenomenal movie musical because mm-hmm. it's like the camera You're shot is about changing. The older one, uh, yeah, the eighties, because it was a remake of the the original uh, Sapphire. Right, yeah. oh, so right. it was originally a, a B grade film with yeah. no mm-hmm. music, and then it was made into a stage musical, and then that stage musical was made back into a film. Okay. And Frank Oz, you know, yeah. the voice of Yoda. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the camera shots are changing all the time, and it's all choreographed. Um, yeah, can I also just say that the the first. I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or so of Baby Driver is just the, the best thing ever. It's so good. And the juxtaposition of a heist going on and him breaking into, a, 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 I don't want to say a song, a um, lip sync. Yeah. And there's those moments where, where something, something horrific is going on in the background and he sort of looks at it. And then he goes into the next song because he's clearly on board with what's going on. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the comparison between these two films, we can make a few connections. Um, obviously, it's the heist that's gone uh, having troubles, and um, the music is obviously important, or, though I don't think that was the biggest connection, but the focus that it's around the heist and not the heist itself, but the pop culture connecting to... So he's doing this pop culture thing in his ears, um, which ties somehow seamlessly into this quite serious thing that's going on, which is robbing a bank. So that's very similar to the to the Reservoir Dogs as well. On the on the on the line of pop culture, what about the nostalgia of iPods? Yeah, I didn't see that coming. His line of it made me feel really old. I remember those. I remember the original iPod in the film. It was like his heirloom, his family yep. heirloom. You know. Yeah, <laughs> it was funny to kind of see it used like that because I. Kind of hadn't felt like that yet, but I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can get that. I think those old iPods are all already considered antiques. Really? Wow. Yeah. Like my dad's what? got. You know? Do you guys remember those iMacs that were like the little half half um, sphere bases? Yes. The, yes. yes totally do. Yeah. yeah. My dad's still got one of those, and it's like I think they're already considered antiques. Wow. It doesn't wow. really work. How does that anymore. make? I wonder what the definition of antique is. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. 
can see them in antique shops. I oh, see. It's got some interesting yeah. comparisons. This film, Baby Driver, in in the kind of recent um, film sphere, and it seems like there's a bit of an upsurge in using more retro uh, music and mm. and more interesting um, pop music. Yeah. Than has previous than has been popular. Are you um, of like Galaxy. Uh, I think Guardians of the Galaxy, Galaxy King Kong, Suicide Squad. And did Kong you, do that as well? Or yeah, Kong Skull yeah, Island? Yeah, sorry, oh. Kong Skull Island did, did quite a bit of that. Mm-hmm. And also, if you see Atomic Blonde, it's very big on that as well, using mm. the, the uh, music. And then, I mean, I compare this a little bit to... I'd probably put this in a line with kind of Whiplash and La La Land. Um, and in what, in what way? Just the, the focus... I mean, I think... I was trying to remember, in Whiplash, I thought there was actually a scene where they choreographed it to the drum music as well. Oh, quite likely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. And so so it's kind of just the musicality of it, I think. Mm. Oh, you got and actually, also with La La, sorry, with Whiplash compared to Baby Driver, there's a certain aspect of being a, a kind of popular film but having a bit of an artsy dynamic mm-hmm. to it. I remember we were talking about that. Yeah, uh, definitely so with, with Baby Driver. And I, I am quite... Um, quite happy that the audiences are responding to Baby Driver so well because I know Edgar Wright's films especially Scott Pilgrim which had such buzz before it they tend to just kind of fizzle out and oh, okay. good great actors though like he's got a raft of really strong names in this film yeah and they all hold their own and they're all quite rich they, they bring their A game as well yeah <laughs> John Hamm he's so good in the he's, movie he's really good and I, and I can't yeah. talk too much about why I love him so much without getting into the spoilers that, that make the film what it is but mm-hmm. yeah he's he's fantastic Jamie Foxx is so good Jamie cool. Foxx was bloody good he's so he was my favourite in the film and Kevin Spacey doing what Kevin Spacey does best yeah. it's <laughs> Uh, my only criticism of this film really is that um, is that just female representation it's the, a woman pretty are pretty poor, pretty poor. it's just mm-hmm. like cut, cardboard cutout characters especially um, the Lily James character like I I felt it while I was watching the movie that she's just through the entire movie waiting for baby um, on the phone going babe are you idiot mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. oh I'm gonna wait for like half, half an hour until I yeah. get another get scene oh okay mm-hmm. yeah she doesn't do anything I feel mm-hmm. I felt that as well um, and, and the one thing that I thought was going to be a criticism but it wasn't and, and it comes back to your point Max about these different films that are bringing in these different jukebox soundtracks I get a, I have a real fatigue when they're jumping through songs a lot. Exactly, um, it that's was, the problem with Guardians of the Galaxy. And, and Suicide Horrible. Squad, which is Horrible. the the biggest the one for me. Is wa- Watchmen. When I watched Watchmen, <laughs> it's like every scene has a different song, and, it just, yeah. and they, they they just don't um, respect the music at all. And yep. so they go cut. Yeah. Next song, cut. And yep. you're just like, and so that's why we were talking recently about Twin Peaks, and they let a song play long, and they kind of orchestrate the scene around it. And it just is so satisfying to let that rhythm have its own life. And yeah. Not not be okay. We're just cutting that off, like you know. Yeah, I, f- I yeah. fully agree. And and the film definitely had that little fatigue at the start for me. And I was very tired when I watched this movie, so it wasn't the best headspace to engage mm-hmm. with this film. Even though I love Edgar Wright, um, but for some reason I haven't figured out yet why that that yeah. that disappeared for me. Like I just got into the the zone of the movie. Is it because so much of the music is tied in so so tight with everything that's happening on screen? Possibly, but even that, which seems, I mean, if you compare it to Watchmen. And you guys haven't seen Suicide Squad, right? No. 
because it is uh, to me it's the idea of using music in a movie and they, they use music for no reason because they have the rights like yeah um, and it's just trying pop to tunes that people just will pop, know recognizable yeah. pop tunes and it's very clear they're trying to ape Guardians of the Galaxy mm. but in a way that's really just wholly ineffective which is I think I think possibly it was the fact that they included a couple of instrumental tracks mm-hmm. um, they weren't afraid to use uh, like the, of course the tequila um, song in the film is just phenomenal. Well, uh, I, I love how a gunfight is choreographed as if the gunshots were percussion. Holy moly! Mm. Really, really cool. My favorite moment was the stacking of money. That was just there was a simple little shot <laughs> with the stacking of money, and each of the money stacks was in time to the music. That's right. That was really satisfying. Yeah, partly just because the song was so good, right? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Can I just go back um, to talking about the gender politics? Um, I did feel like some of the politics of Reservoir Dogs as well seemed a little off, um, and I'm not sure if he deserves this criticism because I'm sure he is cognizant of most of it. But definitely the you know the, the, the sexism of um, seven men around the table talking about Madonna um, Madonna's song "Like a Virgin" and uh, talking about getting having sex with a big penis yeah. um, is you know pretty problematic. And interestingly enough, uh, Madonna sent Tarantino, apparently sent him a, a, a record like a virgin with a note saying it's not about a big penis, it's about love. So that, you know, that because I wasn't sure, but then when I heard that little anecdote, I was like, yeah, this is problematic, you know, like. It's interesting. I, I've had this in terms of Tarantino and in terms of representation. Uh, you know, what are my feelings on it? Because he has, you know, the bride, she's, she's a really fantastic character um death proof has a whole raft of really interesting female dialogue and glorious um, bastards and glorious bastards characters um but then it's like the interesting one for me is hateful eight in which you've got this central female character um and he talks about how he wrote a whole version of the script from her perspective to help him help uh, deproblematize the, the fact that she is the she is one of the key well they're all mm-hmm. villains in that film but she's the key um Oh, not antagonist. Well, you know, she's the one that, that is going to be hung, and so mm-hmm. what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't really know. I, I, I know what you're saying, but yeah, I, I don't I mean, really it's know. It's good that at least he's 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 cognizant of it and he's really trying to deal with it. I, yeah, I there wasn't prison and baby driver though. Like it was clear no, to me no. that Lily James's character was just the girl. Yep. <laughs> and also the wife of John Hamm's character. Yeah. She was just like I, six. I, six. I thought six. she was she was better than than the Lily uh, James character, but not by not by much. No. Um, she was there to serve a purpose. Uh, yeah, I mean, because they're the, the only, only two female characters in the movie, right? And both of them are just tied to the male characters yeah. in such a way that drives them. Um, I, I think that's the entire purpose. I tell you what, though, in, in term, like we talked about the relationship between Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel, mm-hmm. that male-male relationship. Baby Driver... The baby, the baby relationship with his, I guess, his foster dad. Yeah, that was cool. I yeah. loved that. That mm. was really nice. And the fact that he was black as yep. well, just, just you know, it was just a, a little <laughs> detail. Like, it was yeah. there were some really nice things yeah. in there. And that whole relationship for me was far more interesting than the Lily James relationship. And also, kind of, I, I wish they did delve into it more. But his sort of. Um, also, father-son relationship with Kevin Spacey was mm. also really cool, and mm. it, it ends in a really surprising place. But I, I do wish they, you know, had more more to do with that. I agree with you, and I, I, again, I don't want to talk too much about this because it's the third act stuff. But I agree with you. The Kevin Spacey relationship is something that I really enjoyed more than I expected to when mm-hmm. I started watching the film. Um, and we can talk maybe after this podcast and with spoilerish details as, as to why that is. <laughs> oh, ooh, spoilerish details. 
Um, yeah, going back to the music, it, it is just it's it's wonderful when they they play the, the that Queen track at the end of the movie, and it's just it's perfect. I I think Edgar Wright in all of his stuff um, from his TV stuff, his early work, all the way through to now, like music has been such a core part of mm. of his work. Um, and the way how characters are imbued with personality and with, with purpose through whatever soundtrack is playing is, is just fantastic. Queen was used really strongly in Shaun of the Dead, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. That's a great scene. <laughs> okay, nice. yes, I'm pretty sure it's, it's a, a callback in Baby Driver that Queen is so, so important. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just, I, and I'm just thinking again, um, the gender politics. Yeah. Like, I think about all of Edgar Wright's films, and I, I, none of them, I'm confident, have very strong female characters. Really. Mm. But Spaced does. Yeah. Like, Spaced has some really cool female characters. But, but then, uh, Spaced is interesting because it's, it's not written by Edgar Wright, right? It's Simon Pegg and Jessica Hines. Oh, um, and right. he, I did he not just know directed that. everything. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Yeah. So, of course, she wrote half of it. Yeah, yeah. She's phenomenal. Oh, she's great. Have you seen Spaced? No. So Spaced is, um, you know, the TV series that they made where Jessica Hines and um, Simon Pegg play people trying to find a flat. They find a place that needs a couple, and so they pretend to be a couple, which is kind of a construct that kind of peters out as the show goes <laughs> on. It's not really relevant. Um, so it's just about these crazy characters living in this flat. Yeah, and they're both, like, pop culture obsessed. And... and the second season in particular pushes the envelope in terms of, um, like, Matrix parodies. Back when Matrix parodies yeah. was a thing. Um, Tarantino parodies. And it's interesting because Tarantino became a massive fan of the show. Mm. What did a, did a guest commentary on one of the DVD sets that came out years later with Edgar Wright. And, of course, they've become friends. Yeah. And they hugely respect each other's work. Edgar Wright did the Don't trailer for the Grindhouse films, which the three of us watched recently. <laughs> and, uh, and so there's a really nice connection between the fact that we're talking about these two films and that Edgar Wright and Tarantino have huge amounts of respect for each other. And I was watching Baby Driver thinking, knowing that Tarantino loves story mm-hmm. and he's so sick of um, premises that are just uh, a concept or a setup. Um, I'd be interested to know what his thoughts are on Baby Driver. Mm-hmm. I would, I'd be quite confident he'd be and, a big fan. I mean, Baby Driver does feel kind of like a Tarantino movie in a lot of ways um, like Reservoir Dogs a pop fiction the, the whole crime angle the whole like uh, distorted views of criminals and their relationships between each other yeah that's funny I found quite a st- strong feeling for the morality of Baby and um, that kind of hit me a bit when he when he started doing things um, that were more slightly more malicious mm. he does make little kind of token gestures to, to not be to, to not do that but but he's complicit I, yeah he yeah. was definitely, definitely complicit, complicit and I found that a bit I actually found that a little bit jarring mm-hmm. it was probably one of the first jarring moments in the film because most of it is so seamless mm. um, and I, I, I was really involved in this film and I was surprised that like kind of thinking back I'm a little bit less positive about it but when I was in it I was really I was emotionally involved and I think back to the acting and I'm like well, the acting of Baby and his girlfriend wasn't that great, but I, for some reason I really um, was engaged with their relationship in a way that I haven't been engaged with relationships for a while. I was like, I kind of I kind of had a feeling like, I want to be this guy. He's mm. really cool. Mm-hmm. I, was, I, would agree, I would agree with you. And, and even though I mentioned before that I found the relationship between the dad, the foster dad, more interesting. It was still, it was still an authenticity about it. Yeah, something. Yeah, I, but I, I didn't was. mind. I didn't mind the complication of his complicitness, and in fact, that made it more. I was like, "Oh, this is this well, is see, interesting." I, this I, is it was going. interesting. That's why I wanted to like. If it was going to do something, I wanted it to kind of be taken as more of a angle in some ways, mm. and, and actually kind of focused on and, and consciously addressed maybe mm-hmm. the fact that he'd been drawn into this world, and admittedly it wasn't his choice, but. 
now it was affecting him, mm. his morality, and it kind of didn't, it kind of brushed over that a little bit. Okay, I guess um, just one thing I want to add is the the settings of the two movies, Baby Drive and, and Reservoir Dogs, were also really interesting to compare, especially in such close proximity to each other. Whereas I think Baby Driver is such an outdoorsy film, you know, it's all about car chases and foot chases and, and you see Atlanta in its full glory, which is really cool because you don't, don't really get to see it apart from in, in Walking Dead. Um, <laughs> yeah, fall into bits. <laughs> with, with, with all this like CGI over it to make it look dilapidated. Yeah. Um, and then on the flip side, uh, Reservoir Dogs is all about just interior locations. I mean, it's a diner and then it's a warehouse for the rest of it. Or a gangster office yeah. or a club or a, <laughs> a bar. Very bleak, bleak settings as well yeah. with nothing in them kind of. And I, I think that, that really plays to both, both films' straps as well because mm. Reservoir Dogs is all about just this, uh, this pressure cooker, mm. right? And the situa- situation gets more and more tense and gets more and more claustrophobic. Whereas Baby Driver is, at the end of it, just really about breaking free, almost. Uh, mm. Breaking free from Baby's shackles and kind of... He loves music and he loves driving. And gosh darn, he's going to do both of those things. <laughs> That's crack up. Um, have you been to Atlanta, though? Uh, I have not. I have oh, okay. Because I, I, I was wondering if it was maybe that would be the reason why you really enjoyed the location. I didn't feel like it felt particularly unique. I just felt like yeah, it felt like a big, a big American city that was yeah. very concrete. Um, but that's cool. That's I mean, it's, it's still interesting. That obviously, they use it really nicely for the car chase choreography. Um, I like the setting in Reservoir Dogs. I like the America it creates, um, which is kind of all alleyways and um, wire fences and run-down kind of cities. And, it's and so, like, 90s as well. Uh, that, that scene where Tim Roth is practicing in front of a wall of graffiti. Oh, such a oh, shot. Yes, so that's great, eh? Um, and, it, and then I kind of feel like Baby Driver is like a pay-on to, to, to America, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And obviously he's a Brit, and it's very... But it's drenched in American kind of culture and tropes. Yeah. Whereas in some ways, Reservoir Dogs kind of like an anti version of that, and it's about this really dark America. Yeah, I agree with that, Max. Because both movies feature diners. Uh, they feature Americana, seventies uh, music, yeah. like fast cars. Yeah. Yeah, all, all that good stuff. Yeah, totally. But from very, very uh, different directions, as you say. Thank you for listening to Cinema in Context. If you enjoyed our podcast, then please share it with your film-loving friends. You can listen to Cinema in Context through SoundCloud or through Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter. And we also have a YouTube channel, which are great places to leave us comments, let us know what you think, maybe give us suggestions for future films to compare. Look out for our next podcast in a month's time. And until then, ka kite anon.